Nowadays, these kids are running extraordinary times and they're not getting their just due. One thing about it, especially here in the U.S., the sport is not marketed as it should be. There should be a lot more commercials with athletes that are participating. If, if you, if an athlete has made the Olympic team, medal or not, there shouldn't be a shortage of sponsorship opportunities or being a spokesperson or an advocate for whatever company, whatever cause. We're talking about the best people in the world. All right, welcome back everyone to Track and Field Black History. So my name is Anderson and we have the pleasure of speaking with an absolute legend in the sport of track and field. Um, so throughout his career, he's won multiple global medals, both indoors and outdoors, a two-time world champion, a two-time Olympic medalist, multiple time NCAA champion while at South Carolina and probably the top American hurdler for over a decade. I mean, he literally won medal in 2000 and in 2010, and then basically every year in between that. And one of the very few athletes to be world-class in both the sprints and the hurdles. Um, we have the pleasure of being joined by Terrence Trammell from the United States. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Hey, thanks, Anderson. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so I do want to dive in a little bit with your background first um, and what it was like for you growing up in Atlanta during the 1980s and the 90s and um, what initially got you into track and field? Um, so growing up in Atlanta in the 80s, uh, 80s and 90s, I mean, there were a lot of different things going on at the time. I actually um, remember just kind of playing around with my friends a lot um, in, in, in grade school. And we would always have like serious challenges during PE and field day. I couldn't wait for that to come around towards the end of the year. And, um, you know, I played uh, youth football and basketball and baseball. So I was, I was well-rounded. Wasn't really good at, I was really good at uh, fielding in baseball, but I never learned how to hit. So um, unless you're throwing like, all speed, like really slow, <laughs> I wouldn't hit it. So, um, but um, what got me in the track was in the eighth grade, I played basketball at my middle school. So I made the middle school team, but I didn't get a chance to really play a lot. And so I was, um, I was determined to show the coach that I was a better athlete than what he thought I was. And so I found that he was the high school track coach and um, at the time, middle school didn't have track programs. So we went to our feeder school, our feeder high school, and competed under them. And so I uh, went to the tryouts and come to find out that he was a girls coach. Um, so, so much for showing him. But what wound up happening, I got a chance to learn and go under the wing of Coach Napoleon Cobb, who legendary. Um, uh, high school coach, I mean, multiple, multiple state championships. Uh, we won a, a national title for him in 96. And um, to this day, uh, I keep in close touch with him. And, um, you know, I'm, as, a, as a coach, as a younger coach, I mean, I do have a, a few years under my belt now. I always go to him for advice. And, you know, it's just good to get that reassurance that um, I'm doing things the right way. So um, that's 
Uh, pretty much it. I mean, um, in high school, uh, I played football and ran track. And at the time we had a very storied, um, we had a very storied uh, uh, program, football, track and the marching band. And so anyway, um, we, we were known nationally and it gave us a lot of credence and, and um, really enjoyed those times. It, it was one of those things where um, you kind of took those, those days for granted because, um, because they were so often, you know, you had, you had those days so often. And so I think looking back on those days, those were really good days and it gave us an opportunity to really enjoy our success. And uh, so many people had the opportunity to do great things. And so we, we pushed each other along. Nice. That's really good to hear. I'm curious because I so I don't hear a lot of athletes, a lot of track athletes who played baseball. You know, a lot, I do hear a lot about, you know, football and basketball. Do you still maybe maybe not dabble in, but do you still like follow baseball? Are you still into it? So. I got a chance, of course, to watch the Braves during the World Series. Um, you know, it, it, Atlanta was a buzz at that time. And I think. Like I'll normally watch it like during the all-star game or say if it's the, uh, the, the American league or national league conference or world series, I'll follow it at that point. Outside of that, I mean, they play 162 games, so <laughs> <laughs> we don't catch them in, in, in April. We'll catch them in September. You know? Yeah. Very true. Very true. Um, I love like what you were speaking about in terms of, you know, the support and that environment that you had in high school. Um, and then going into South Carolina, I'm curious what led you to South Carolina, especially speaking about, you know, that environment you had in high school. Why not choose to potentially stay in Georgia or in the Atlanta area, but now you went to South Carolina instead? So there were several factors in my choice of, of the University of South Carolina. One, um, I have family from North Augusta, which is about uh, just under an hour away from Columbia, which university, uh, where the university is. And also being able to train under Curtis Fry, who's Alan Johnson's coach at the time. And Alan Johnson being uh, the dominant hurdler the world over several years in a row, gave me an opportunity to really have a great mentor and so I felt like that was a good move. It was a program that was still kind of finding its footing, if you will, as far as the type of program it was going to be from a track standpoint. And we had great throwers. Our, our field, our field uh, events were really, really thriving at the time, but sprinting not so much, weren't really known for that. So had an opportunity to help develop something. And so it, it went really well. Um, what, what did it for me, I think um, the 96 Olympics were here in Atlanta and I was going to the 12th grade at the time. And so my older brother had come across some tickets and we got a chance to actually uh, witness the Olympic Games in person, and it was like no other experience I ever had. Um, just being able to see Michael Johnson win the 400 in those golden track spikes, 
and Carl Lewis win his ninth gold medal, uh, winning the long jump, uh, and watching um, Allen Johnson win the hurdles. He he broke the Olympic record that night, and it was just something special about that moment. It was it was a it's kind of surreal just to be in that environment. And so I looked at my brother and I said, you know, in four years, that's where I want to be. And so uh, he looked at it as, oh, okay, well, yeah, that sounds good. And I'm like, no, you know, in four years, like, that's where I want to be. Like, I, I, I got to get there. And so that was the determining factor as to my pursuit going forward, because I had a lot of scholarship offers in football as well. And so it was a very tough decision. And I think what probably won me over with uh, Coach Fry is, and this shows, this shows uh, the wisdom of, of older people. He told me that if I ran track for him for the first two years, at least, he would allow me to walk on for, to the football team. And so I thought that was, that was cool, all right, awesome. But what I didn't know was my third year would be the Olympic year. <laughs> so naturally, I'm like, no, it's no football. I'm focusing on this. And um, made the team and took it from there. But I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit <laughs> later on. So. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I am curious about that. So, of course, you spoke about, you know, Coach Fry. You spoke about Alan Johnson and your high school coach. Um, what impact did those people who you kind of looked at as role models and the support system, what impact did they have, you know, of course, transitioning into college and then even getting to the Olympics? What was that support system like? And if you had any other role models that you kind of looked up to as well? My high school coach, Coach Cobb, developed me into the caliber athlete that the world knows. He was very... He was very intent on preparation. We had t-shirts that said, it's not the will to win, it's the will to prepare to win. Mm -hmm. And so I took that saying, and I'm, I, I put my own spin on it for my athletes. I say, you're either scared or prepared. So the one thing that we, that we were able to do, and this has transcended just the sport itself uh, in my life, but being able to visualize myself being successful in what I'm doing, going through those mental cues and just being willing to put in the work. I think that's the biggest thing. Talent-wise, we were blessed with some talent in high school, but I don't think we had any more talent than anyone else. We had a high threshold for hard work and we had school pride like none other. And I think that was the thing that, that, made, that made the difference, that strong belief system in ourselves and in our team and in our school. And um, Coach Fry gave me a lot of exposure because I was a young athlete, freshman. I was the track and field news male athlete of the year in high school. And so with that came a lot of attention and I think Coach Fry really built on that and, and leveraged that to really get the program up and going and got me a lot of great notoriety as well. 
Um, Coach Fry is one of those guys that he's a really good, like a masterful hurdle technician coach. And we were doing something a little bit different than the norm with how we approached hurdling in itself. And I think that's what helped give me the longevity that I had uh, to compete at such a high level for so many years. And being with Allen, being able to train under Allen, it was like having my own personal cheat sheet because by the time I attended South Carolina, Allen was already the Olympic champion and the two-time defending world champion. So he was at the top of his game at that point in time. And just seeing the way he prepared, seeing the way he approached track meets, certain workouts that we had, it just really added another dimension to what uh, my high school coach taught me and, and instilled. So it worked out really, really well. I still talk to Alan to this day and and we talk about the state of track and field and different things that could and should happen and just kind of training things and, and what he's found to be effective for him as a coach and things that I found to be effective. And so kind of matching wits and, and, and kind of, you know, iron sharpening iron, if you will. And I'm definitely curious um, to hear about some of the things you, some of the ideas you all speak about in terms of the state of track and field. Um, but before that, of course, while you're at South Carolina, like you said, you made the Olympic team, right? You didn't get that chance to go to, to football like might've happened, but making it to the Olympic team, I mean, you had already been multiple time NCAA champion in both the sprints and, you know, 100 and 100 meter hurdles and, you know, 60, um, 110 hurdles, 60 and 60 hurdles. Um, but, you know, you were still in college. Um, and I'm curious what that experience was like. You know, you set this goal back in 96, but now you're, it's actually happening, right? Now you're making your way to Sydney, you're going to the Olympics, and of course you eventually win a silver medal. But I'm curious what that experience was like um, making to the Olympics there. So the Olympic trials were highly stressful mm -hmm. because you know that this is the moment that defines whether you realize your dream or not. Also, at the time, my personal best was 13.28. My season's best was 13.30. The veterans had been running mid-high teens all season and throughout the trials. So another thing that I was fighting was, okay, how do I step my game up beyond what I have done to this point to make that happen? So there's a lot of, a lot of, um, I would say a, a very big moment of truth, a very big moment of truth. And it goes back to you either scared or prepared mm. and going to the finals, going from the, from the warm-up area to the track in the finals, we were in Sacramento and it was scorching hot. And I just remember being kind of overwhelmed with anxiety. And so 
you know, I just walked up to Alan and said, hey, man, I'm just so nervous. Like, I don't know what to do. And he said, hey, man, just treat it like practice. And all of a sudden, I had like a calm because I knew that I prepared as best I could. And I knew that in practice, I was always on Alan's hip. You know, I was just right there in practice. Um, however, this is the Olympic trials and Alan Johnson is a whole nother animal when a title is on the line. So I wasn't necessarily on his hip <laughs> during the final. But to be there at that moment, as hot as it was, and seeing some of my friends from other schools make the Olympic team, I want, I really want to be a part of that. I, I really want to be a part of that. And our first gun was a false start. And back at that time, each athlete was awarded one false start. So it could be a good, a good race. It, it could be good on number one or number nine. Yeah. <laughs> Just depends on who all wants to play the game. And that was another thing that we dealt with. And I think that because the high hurdlers always had maybe two or three false starts, that's when the rules started changing. Yeah. Because now we have to, they production has to make sure that the race goes off during the allotted time that they have for, for mm -hmm. TV. And so, <laughs> so now the, the tension goes up even greater because, okay, that was a false start. And I felt like I put everything into that start. <laughs> which we go through starts all the time in practice. So it wasn't a big deal, but it was the amount of emotion and the focus that, that took place at the time. So the gun goes off again and I'm hurdling through hurdle, you know, going through hurdle one, through hurdle two. And uh, I tell everybody this, it was almost as if I had an out of body experience. Like I was in the race, but I wasn't in the race. So like I was watching everything happen and finally got back in the race uh, around hurdle number eight. And I just remember clearing eight, nine, and 10, and just running with everything I had to the finish line. And so it didn't take long for them to flash the results for Allen and Mark, uh, Mark Creer. Yep. As Allen ran 12.97, Mark ran 13.11, but it was a blanket finish for third. And so it seemed, and it was a, a long time. It seemed, it seemed to be 30 minutes, but it was probably only like a minute um, before they flashed it. I had gotten third with a PB of 13, 19. So that was, I remember hyperventilating from the excitement of knowing that I made the team. Um, and getting one of those uh, cold towels that they had because it was so hot and they would just drape it over our heads or whatnot, needing that because I couldn't breathe. I was just so excited. And at that point, it was very apparent that whatever you put your mind to and focus on and work and prepare for, you can achieve it. And that was, that was one of the biggest moments uh, of not just my career, but of my life because of, of setting a lofty goal 
and being able to accomplish that. Because again, at the time I was only 21 and most hurdlers, you know, they don't really find success like that. Well, at that time they were really finding success like that until maybe 24, 25 or a couple of years out of college. And technically at that point, I still had another year of college eligibility. So it was really a, a major deal and a blessing. Do you feel like, I, I love how you speak about, cause you've spoken a lot about the emotional aspect and like kind of the mindset. And, you know, of course you were talking about hurdles, right? They're super technical, but a lot of the things that you're talking about are really kind of, kind of outside the track and like getting into that good mindset, even like speaking with others. Um, are those some of the things that you do instill with your athletes um, that you do coach now? For sure. I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing about track, and I tell my I tell my athletes this all the time, there's no defense in track. The only one that can make you run slower is yourself. You only do that when you focus outside of your lane. So when you focus on your race plan and you know you're giving good effort, then you should see fruit from that and you should be successful. And um, the biggest thing that I try to get my athletes to do is to picture how their performance will go. And I talk them through the different phases of their races and help them understand why we do what we do in practice. Kind of give them the method to the madness because there's a lot of madness. <laughs> and so I know they really don't get it oftentimes, but we just had our region championship this past week and just about everybody ran personal best. So when it mattered most, they, they stepped up and they had their best performances. Nice. So now they see why we did all the grueling stuff that we did early on, why I harped on certain things, certain small technicalities that I just have always been a stickler for and, they, they answered, you know, they answered the call. That's amazing to hear. And um, so curious after, you know, of course, the Olympic trials, the Olympics, and then, like you said, you had one more year at South Carolina, but you chose to, of course, um, you know, forego. And what was that transition like? And specifically thinking of, did you receive any type of support, whether that be support like um how to navigate as not only a professional athlete not only maybe like financial literacy but even just being an adult now right like this is now your job so i'm curious on what that was like i had maybe one or two mentors hmm. at the time uh, antonio Pettigrew, mm -hmm. uh, rest in peace he was one of the first ones to tell me to put my money up and try to invest in something or start some type of business mm. of some sort because the money comes really quickly and it can go just as quickly if you're not responsible. And just I leaned back on my high school coach because at the time it was an adjustment but I don't think it was a terrible adjustment. I was still relatively doing some of the same things. Mm -hmm. Instead of being on scholarship, I was paying for my classes now. And uh, <clears throat> I 
thank God for the scholarship because that's a lot to be shelling out. Absolutely. But I was fortunate enough to have the money to go ahead and pay for it and not really have to worry about it. So that was a good thing. Um, I think I kept things as close to normal as possible. The difference was arranging things with my professors because I would have to leave for a meet or something along those lines. And the ones that understood and that followed me gave me no problems at all. And um, so that was a good moment. Those, those, those were, good, were good times because I'm, I'm still in school, but I have a full-time job, but it's something that I love. It's my gift, my calling. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was a transition uh, simply because in the college schedule, the, the collegiate season, you run basically every weekend. But on the circuit, you may run once every two weeks, every two and a half weeks, depending upon what is it you're looking to do, what you're focusing on and that sort of thing. I mean, at that time, there were meets in Europe virtually every single day, literally. And some guys that I knew actually just backpacked it and stayed in Europe and they just ran and they just ran and they just made a living out of going from place to place. And, and I actually think that when they were back for the US championships or the Olympic trials, they just kind of broke up what they were doing. So they, they went to compete for the team because they were supposed to, but I think they made a lot of good money just backpacking through Europe and, and hitting different meets. Nice. That's, that's really interesting to hear. Um, and do you have advice for, you know, there's tons of athletes now, of course, it's pretty common for athletes to, you know, go to college and maybe they leave early to go pro, but we do have a lot of athletes who go pro straight from high school. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious on your thoughts on that. And maybe if you have advice for athletes who are, you know, they're hitting on all cylinders they're they can compete with some of the best, um, you know, do you advise them to maybe take a year of college or, you know, depending on their situation, potentially go pro? I would definitely recommend uh, going through college for several reasons. One, the social aspect mm -hmm. and just the next step of maturity. Two, being a part of a program where there's a little more leeway because you're responsible, you're solely responsible for your success or your failure. Um, and I personally felt like it would be cool to have a championship at every level. So to be a collegiate champion or something like that. Now, when you have people like Arian Knighton or um, Arian Knighton or uh, Allison Felix, those are clear exceptions to the rule. They're like anomalies. I mean, Arian, I think, is still just 18 years old. And yeah. uh, he's still running sub 20. And, and he, like, I'm really going to enjoy watching his career unfold. Mm -hmm. And he seems to have a pretty level head. Um, you get so many athletes that, that run a time have one performance and they think they're ready for the pro circuit. But what they don't take into account, yes, you ran a time that 
these athletes run week in and week out. But you also have to factor the travel. You have to factor the difference in the time zones, the environment of being in another country, having to make your flight or your train or whatever the, that may entail. And those are a lot of different stresses that come up come upon athletes as they travel throughout the circuit. So are you able to do that and handle that? Are you able to handle some pressure coming from beyond the track from maybe a meat promoter may say a thing or two, how they're looking for you to have a great performance, something of that sort or whatever. I mean, you know, it could be added pressure if you allow it to be. And so there are a lot of things to a lot of things that that aren't necessarily looked at as far as what it takes to be on the pro circuit. I mean, you're you're quote unquote professional at the time, so you're expected to you're expected to be a professional, act as a professional, perform as a professional. So, um, I would always recommend taking each level. Uh, that comes along with it. One year college minimum, two years possibly. And that's not saying, that's not necessarily hammering home, you must get a college education, you must get a college education, but you need to experience each level of the sport. And what you decide to do, what that individual decides to do as far as continuing education, I would just hope that they would make the right choice for themselves long-term, whatever that may entail. That's a good point. I like what you said about the different levels, right? It may not be, you know, college provides that vehicle to hit all those different levels. Um, of course, the education comes along with it, but, you know, you may make different choices, but having that kind of structure, having that support um, can be very helpful and beneficial in the long-term. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree. Um, so to dive a little bit back into your career, um, so like I said, you are one of the very few athletes who was a sprinter and a hurdler. Um, I mean, I, I think you still have, you still have one of the, I think you're top 10 all time in the 60 still. And of course you're like top four, I think you're number four all time in the 60 hurdles um, in the world. And I'm curious what the secret was, right? You don't see many hurdlers who are able to actually, you know, transition. I mean, we have like, you know, Grant Holloway, he's of course amazing now. And, you know, there's a couple others in the past who are really, really good, but you are a very, very special case. So I'm curious what, you know, what that was like being able to transition between both, both the events. Yeah, so I called it my on and off switch. Um, my own switch was when I was hurdling, my off switch was when I was sprinting. And I switched it up that way because in hurdling, you have to be up in eight steps in order to take that 42 inch barrier. In sprinting, you have to be just a little more patient. I mean, it's a sprint, but you still have to go through your phases if you wanna sprint successfully. And so I knew when it was time to sprint or when it was time to hurdle, which was which. And Coming out of high school, I was a 1050 guy, FAT, and that was my only 100, um, and that was my senior year. And the funny thing is, I actually beat 
at the National Scholastic uh, Championships my senior year in high school, I got third behind Bernard Williams and John Propel. Wow. <laughs> Hardly enough. And I actually wound up beating the Georgia State champion in the 100 meters at that, at that championship. And so that was pretty cool to do so and then uh, go back and, and win the hurdles later. So it was kind of indicative of how my career had gone on the circuit. For the most part, I mean, I had a lot of success. I had a lot of wins in the 60 um, and several wins in the 100, but I would always seem to be top three in, in, in the sprints. And so one year in, um, I want to say 2006, I was actually, I think at that point, I was number one in the world in the, in the hurdles. And I want to say number five or six in the world in the 100 meters. And so I just really thought that was cool to be ranked top 10 in the world in both uh, like that. Um, and I feel as if I had more races, I would have been a 9-8 sprinter. I just didn't run it enough to really get that rhythm or that midpoint of transition. I would always jump in here and there, you know, 10-0, 10-10, something around those times. And so um, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And just on that, I know I, I could be missing one. I know you ran the four by one in Berlin in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. Did you get to run any other global four by ones before then? <laughs> so, okay. I made a strong case, I thought, uh, for years at the Penn Relays, at Texas Relays, at other meets where we might have had relays. And I was always overlooked for the four by one because I'm a hurdler. And if you go back and look at all of those races, each time I ran lead off, I always won. <laughs> now you may have a certain someone who has considered themselves the greatest first leg of all time to deny that, but the video wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't tell otherwise. So um, in 2008, we were in Stockholm and I made myself available to run on the B team four by one. And I can't remember who was all on my team at the time. I want to say Wallace was the anchor and I was first, I gave it to Mike Rogers and either Darvis Patton or Sean Crawford was third leg. So it was a really good team. And that was the B team. And we wound up winning. We ran 37.9, 37.99. That was my first time on the 38. And I was ecstatic. And they wanted me to go to the training camp for the four by one relay in 2008, but we would have missed the opening ceremonies. And I didn't want to miss the opening ceremonies because that was Olympics number three. Yep. And I may not get back to that. And hindsight being what it is, I think I made a good move, <laughs> you know. And so 2009. So there's a there's a there's a really big thing with the relay, with the US relay. There's a lot of politics that go behind it. And it's more than just having the four fastest guys there. 
Um, there are agents involved, there are personal coaches involved, there are shoe companies involved. So there's a lot of things that go behind it that people just don't know. And so with all that turmoil, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to see that the fruit of all that stuff comes up to be U.S. doesn't finish, U.S. doesn't stick, you know, that sort of thing. Because there's a lack of chemistry, but Coach Harvey Glance was the, uh, the sprint coach for 2009 and he was top of the relay and so the way he wanted to do it was he took us to different meets to prep we ran I think maybe two meets prior to the world championships and he told us early who his six guys were and he called me into his room and he said he wanted me to just run the prelims to get them to the finals. And most guys would have probably balked at that because, you know, sprinters ego, they want to be in the, in the big dance, you know, they, so I didn't balk at it. So, okay, you know, cool. And then he said, you'll get a medal. Of course you'll get a medal, but we're going to split the money six ways. I was like, oh pff, yeah. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I was definitely sold after that. And so I was really excited because I said, I finally get a chance to run the four by one. And we qualified with the fastest time. And then Great Britain protests our last exchange. So I wound up not being able to get a medal after that. And I was really uh, annoyed by that because, you know, my, my, my time to do that. And I think we were primed to go really fast. If I'm not mistaken, I think they were planning on running Tyson first leg uh, for that final. And I was totally sold that our relay was going 36 at the 09 games. Like you couldn't have told me that they weren't based on the lineup that they said they had for the final. And so um, I was excited. I was like, yeah, let me do my part and get out the way. I want to see this. And so, um, it just didn't align that way, but I did get an opportunity to run the relay for Team USA. So I am definitely proud of that. That that's so cool. And I think with your, I'm almost certain Alan Johnson. He didn't run a four by one, but I feel like he ran a four by four. He did um, in '97. '97. Right? Four by four. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. both got relays in common at least on the global stage, uh, which yep. is pretty cool. <laughs> Very cool. Um, and kind of bouncing off that. So we were just talking about 09. Um, but you started, or at least, you know, global career, first global medal was in 2000. So that longevity is, you know, it's unmatched. We don't see many athletes really hit a high level from, you know, for a decade. And of course, you won, um, you won a medal in Doha in 2010 as well, indoors. Um, so what was it like for you to compete throughout that entire decade with so many different athletes, right? I mean, you ran with, you might've been in races with like Colin Jackson and then all the way later till, you know, Aries Merritt and, you know, all the newer athletes. So what was that like? So I'll do you one better. I actually competed against Roger Kingdom. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Um, in college, I was a sophomore. I ran against him, well, as a freshman and a sophomore. 
I competed against Roger and he's from Georgia as well. And so it was an honor just to be on the track with him. So guys like Tony Dees, um, Courtney Hawkins, um, who else? Yeah, Roger and, and I mean, it was some really great big name guys that I grew up watching as a youngster watching that I had a chance to compete against. And it was, it was a great experience. And being able to see the difference from when I first started to when I retired, the athletes were different. And the old school guys would, would do little things like <laughs> if they didn't, if, if, if a guy didn't like you, while you were warming up for your hurdles, you were coming out of blocks doing a run through, they would let you get over a couple of hurdles, then they'd go by and they would take your block pedals and they'd scoot them back or braze them up. You know, it was little stuff like that. Um, the the fall starting, that was all head games. That was getting people off their game. Um, my first time running against Tony D's, I was a sophomore in college, I want to say. And Tony was a big guy. He was like 6'4", 225. I mean, he was big. And his arm span was long. And we were next, we were right next to each other. I think he was in five and I was in six. Or he was, yeah, I think he was in five and I was in six. And so he stood in his lane and put his hands on his hips like this. And he was halfway in my lane with his arms being like that. And looking back at it, he probably stood a little closer to my lane to put his arm out like that, just for an intimidation uh, type thing. And I'm all in the corner of my lane, like, you know. And so um, at any rate, there are a lot of different things that um, the old school guys did that the young ones didn't. I mean, there's a lot of trash talk at the start line, headed toward the start line, just a lot of different little things. And I don't, the guys weren't doing that by the time I was, I was out of there. They, they just weren't. Everybody was just focused on themselves. They didn't. And so I used to do a walk back and forth uh, for a while because I knew like they would pay attention to what I was doing, especially when they're calling the names, when they're going through the roll call or the start of the lineup, I would just walk back and forth from the first hurdle to my blocks. And I knew that was a way to make them a little uneasy. And I would take my time getting in the blocks because they would be a little more stressed holding their arms there. And so just little things I kind of picked up from the old heads, you know, just to kind of use that to my advantage. And so I did. <laughs> nice. Do you feel like, what do you think of that? Cause like you said, yeah, there's not as much intimidation and kind of head games on the line. Do you think that's, it was better um, back in the day, earlier in career, or do you think now it's a little bit better? I don't know what you prefer. I'm going to say, the way it was done back in the day may have been a little bit better because it forced you to really focus on yourself. 
Mm. It forced you to always make sure that you you were at the top of your game. Because again, there's no defense in track. So if you waste your energy focused on the guy two lanes down, then he's already won. And that was the thing is like, I liken it to the NBA being what it was in the 80s and 90s. It was rough. You know, you go down in the paint, you might be missing a tooth going up for a layup or something like that. You know, now they flop all over the place. You run by a guy, he's falling on the ground. So, you know, it's just, I guess time, times have changed. And, and uh, so, you know, I just uh, liken it to that. And so kind of bouncing off of, and like you noted before, you were speaking about how you and um, and Alan, you kind of speak about the state of the sport. Um, so one thing I'm curious about is, so kind of right before you came in, um, there was names like um, Carl Lewis and Jackie Joyner Kersey, right? In the eighties and the early nineties. Um, and then even right before you, Michael Johnson, right? You retired after 2000, um, but these were like kind of larger than life figures at least like you know they really got a lot of exposure mm -hmm. um and then even during your time right alan johnson um maurice green um mm -hmm. you know there were some athletes like that who were really really big as well um but do you feel outside of those really big names that track and field as a whole was well represented during the time that you were running i think it was at the time there were a lot of talented people in track and field. And of course, Michael Johnson, Marion Jones, Maurice Green, a lot of, those, those were kind of like the three mainstays. Gail Devers was still competing at the time. I think she competed up until 2004 or 2005, I wanna say. So she was still a very, 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 tough competitor at the time. I mean, she was winning. As a matter of fact, um, I used her, I used her philosophy for traveling overseas and competing. So I, I, I used to notice that we would be in a place for a couple of days. And sometimes I would have jet lag, you know, that first race over in Europe, you, you suffer from some serious jet lag, depending on when you came in. And I would notice there were times where she would come in the day before and go compete and run like 12-3, 12-4, and then go on to the next meet and then go back home. And so I used to wonder, how did she do that? And so I started scheduling my flights to get me to the meet the day before and then uh, do my shakeout that day and the next day go compete. And then the jet lag would hit like the next day or the day after that. So I would completely miss it. Um, but going back to, to, to your question, I think the sport was well represented at the time. It was, it had a lot more exposure at the time. Nowadays, these kids are running extraordinary times and they're not getting their just due. One thing about it, especially here in the US, the sport is not marketed as it should be. There should be a lot more commercials with athletes that are participating. If, if, you've, if an athlete has made the Olympic team, medal or not, there shouldn't be a shortage of sponsorship opportunities or 
being a spokesperson or an advocate for whatever company, whatever cause. We're talking about the best people in the world. And I think society has kind of become jaded to that. I mean, I, I say this all the time. Anytime, anytime someone is looking for um, a sponsorship or they're looking for an employment opportunity, they always look to what Fortune 500 companies because those 500 companies influence basically how the economy works from a, uh, from, from a global standpoint. We're talking about 500 companies. Well, only eight people can perform in a final. Only three people can get a medal. You know, so to me, that's something, I mean, even, even in other sports, you have the opportunity to compete, to be a world champion or considered a world champion every single season. But an Olympics only comes around every four years. So that's something to be held in high regard, in high esteem. So I think the sport could be better marketed. I think that they, there may be ways that they're trying to make, uh, tra give track and field more exposure. Um, I know that, um, mile split and, and let's run and those type of platforms are doing a magnificent job as far as marketing the sport giving so much footage i mean it's awesome i, I finally i finally bit the bullet and got a mile split account so i can <laughs> see everything that's going on now and, and i know nbc has the universal network that that shows a lot of olympic sports and i just think any any sport regardless of the discipline once you reach professional status, there should never be a lack of resources and a lack of exposure. And the two things I'm thinking about, um, well, first thing is kind of like in the, I guess in the middle towards the end of your career is when social media really started to, you know, kind of blow up. I mean, you know, Facebook, and then of course, after that, you know, Instagram and Twitter and, and TikTok and everything, of course, now. Um, but what are your thoughts on that? So, you know, NBC, you know, the, they have, you know, they, they get to display track and field, at least like the Olympics and the major events. Um, but sometimes, you know, if you're talking about, let's say an athlete who finishes eighth in the Olympics, right? Or even at the Olympic trials, I mean, making the Olympic trials final is a, I think it's a pretty big deal, huge. Yeah. right? So, um, but they may not get that recognition. They may not even be known despite being having a lane to final. Um, so what are your thoughts of athletes and their use of social media and like the growth of social media to kind of display our sport? To be honest, I wish I had the opportunity to use social media when I was competing. I mean, it's, they can become superstars in their own right. Mm -hmm. And this generation knows so much about technology and social media and how to do certain little things strategically to gain following recognition and exposure. And I think it's awesome. I think it's something that the athletes now, if done correctly, would never have to worry about any type of uh, financial uh, disparities just because they're put in a light to where they create their own platform, their own, their own space. 
Um, there are several there are several athletes that are adamant about their about about championing certain causes and human rights and um, Black Lives Matter and women in sports and that sort of thing. And they've kind of you know taken a life of their own. And I think that's great. Sports should provide the platform for athletes to grow beyond just said sport. So I, I think it's great. I, I mean, I say milk it as much as possible. It's nice. And then last question on this, um, before we start to just have a few more questions to wrap up, but like track and field in high school is, I, I could be wrong, but I think it's the most participated sport in high school. But then, you know, we get to college and there's a huge drop off, like, mm -hmm. you know, it, not even just in participation, but even in just like interest in the sport. Um, I know I competed in high school and in college and, you know, tons of my friends who I competed with, they don't even follow the sport anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that as to why there's such a drop off in terms of interest in track and field. My personal opinion and my personal opinion only. I think that track in high school is a sport that people go, that, that people participate in for the social aspect. Mm. Girls might want to look at guys and guys might want to look at girls or in certain instances, track is for lack of a better word, the, the all commerce sport where an athlete cannot be so good in other sports, I would just go for the track team. In certain cases, you have um, guys that run track to stay in shape for football. So that's where the drop-off comes in. And if kids are at a real program where they are really coaching and teaching and getting kids in shape, that comes with a lot of pain. And so they're gonna go to the pass of least resistance. And so, I think that has a lot to do with it. And then some, they try and they realize that they may like the sport, but their talent doesn't match their desire. And so they realize, okay, well, this is as far as I can go with it. And so they they grow up and they move on. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I wish that there was, um, I, I think all the points you make are 100% 100% true. I wish there was a lot more carryover, even if it's just like, you know, they don't run anymore, but they're just fans of the sport, right? They're just invested right. in watching things like that. So I think the one thing that would make fans more fans of the sport, some kind of way, the money behind it, mm. because that will carry a lot of attention, a, a huge following, because people are naturally drawn to that. I mean, let's think about it. Respectfully, if golf didn't have the type of endorsements and sponsorships tied behind it, we're just talking about people walking through the field, hitting the ball. Respectfully. Respectfully, NASCAR drivers drive a couple of hundred miles an hour in circles for hours on end. True. But they make a lot of money doing it. Very true. So anything, anything can happen. I, I, 
I think if you can make those types of sports popular to the point that they gain that type of acknowledgement and, and can get that type of financial backing, I think track and field can have the same thing. And, and then I think the attention will go to that because it's hard for me to see. And football is my first love. I mean, my earliest memories of anything was football in some capacity. <clears throat> but it's hard for me to believe that guys would risk life and limb if the salary in the NFL was still $44,000 or $50,000, you know? So. Very true. Definitely, definitely hear that. Um, so to kind of move into, you know, start to close out with a couple other questions, but just thinking of your post-track career, um, I'm really intrigued if you could speak about some of the things that you've done, you know, since of course you retired. Um, and of course with, with Tremel Athletics, um, if you could dive into some of the things you've done. So it took me a couple of years to kind of uh, know exactly how I wanted to transition. Of course, I had my apparel for a bit. So I was outfitting, outfitted some high schools, uh, football and basketball and track. Um, and then I uh, moved on to doing speed coaching and consulting. And that's what I'm doing at this point. I'm speed coaching, consulting. I am currently working on finishing up my uh, hurdle curriculum and um, looking to grow uh, my subscriber base uh, with Tremel Athletics and just offering consultations via Zoom and classes, courses, um, social media content, you know, to kind of give ins and outs and, and, and tell a story or two about my experience on the circuit or in college or something of that magnitude. And that's really uh, been a mainstay for me, uh, doing those types of things and just working on developing ways to help people become the best versions of themselves. I do a lot of public speaking as well, speak to schools and, and different companies and things like that. And as a coach, I can, I can now speak on leadership and management styles and, and, and understanding your personnel and being able to get the best out of them and, and not make it seem as if, um, uh, for lack of a better term, that you're uh, cracking the whip or, you know, something along those lines. So, that's what I'm doing. Um, watching my daughter just grow and spend time with her and, and just helping to raise her to be, you know, an, an, an awesome human being. So that is absolutely beautiful. Um, and I love all the different things that you're, you're touching upon um, and that you're doing not only in track, but like you said, in leadership and management and all these different aspects. Um, so kind of relating to that, um, and of course, throughout your career, right, you won multiple silver medals, right, during your outdoor yeah. career. Um, and unfortunately, you know, never got that elusive kind of outdoor gold medal um, at the World Championships or the Olympics. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm curious with that, um, not only as a coach, but in some of the other things that you do, um, 
how do you kind of channel some of the things that you were able to do to maintain your career despite never getting that gold medal um, into some of the things you do now, both on the track, but then also for, you know, others that you work with in different capacities off the track as well? I think the, the biggest thing is since my, since my career uh, has ended, looking back on it and just reevaluating me competing against myself and just being the best version of myself or, or preparing in a way that when the biggest stage comes around that I put my best performance on. And so in coaching now, in coaching high school track and field, that's one thing that I always talk about. It is, it can be very frustrating uh, not getting that elusive gold medal outdoors when you've won gold medals throughout your entire career. But in the grand scheme of things, two of those well, actually, three of those silvers came from, one came from the tie of the world record and two came from uh, the fastest time in the world that year, which was beyond my personal best. So I think looking back at it, there are people that have won one gold medal and that's it. And although I didn't win what I thought I should have won, the results still speak for themselves. Every time you turn around, Terrence Tremell is going to be on that podium. And you get to a point, I got to a point where I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's just not meant to be. Uh, and then I dealt with the death of my father in 2010. So I was out for outdoors 2010 and indoors of 2011. And I came back for outdoors of 2011, but that was a year off and dealing with what I dealt with. And it was extremely difficult. That was the first time I didn't make a team. I missed it by a hundredth of a second. And oddly enough, 60 days later, the time that I didn't make the team with actually won the gold medal at the world championship, you know? So um, I think my career was definitely successful there, you know, one or two things that I felt were probably left on the table, but consistency, I felt like a, was a major thing to be consistent, to know that your best is always gonna come out. Go for the win always. If you don't win, you know that you've put somebody beyond where they felt they could physically go to beat you. And that was it, just never back down. Just never back down. The only game you don't win is the game you don't play. That is really good. That is, that is amazing. And yeah, I mean, despite never getting that gold, I mean, again, you were the, I can probably argue the top hurdler in the world for a decade, definitely the top American hurdler in the world. Um, you know, Alan Johnson, of course, at the second half of his career, but you 
carried that through from 2000 all the way to 2010 that, you know, undoubtedly Terrence Trammell holds that kind of spot in hurdling during that time. So yeah, (laughs) your career is definitely solidified. so to close out a little bit different, I want to ask you um, just some little different questions. Um, okay. My first question is, let's say you had the chance to compete in the upcoming Olympics um, and you're in your prime, you're healthy, no injuries, n- nothing, nothing wrong with you, but you can't compete in your primary event. And I'm going to say you can't do 100 or the Oh, one. man. Oh. I, I can't let you. I can't let you. I was you. going straight to the 100. <laughs> <laughs> can't let you cheat. So what event would you choose? And it could be on the track, could be on the field. That's a very, very good question. Um, I would probably say the long jump, mm. but the White Phillips couldn't be competing. <laughs> he would, he would have to go to his other event <laughs> of his prime. So you two were like during that whole decade, it was like you and him in you and the hurdles, him and the long jump. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you What do you think you could have jumped in a long jump? I don't know. Uh, in an I- ideal situation, 26 feet, maybe. I mean, you know, and that's because I have no earthly idea. Like, I, I mean, you know, I just, I, I really like that event. Nice. I really like that event. I like the shot put, but those guys, you know, you kind of have to bench 500 pounds to make that work. So. <laughs> Nice, nice. Hey, long jump, long jump is, though, I just saw, you know, this past week, Carl Lewis was saying that long jump is the hardest event in track and field. And that kind of blew up the the track world because <laughs> a lot of people were like, long jump? Mm, I don't know, but. <laughs> yeah, that's like starting a bar fight and then sliding out the side door. Um, <laughs> I think, I, I mean, and again, I can't speak to that because I never yeah. did the long jump. But from my perspective, I think the hardest event is between the 400 hurdles and the 800 meters. Mm. That's what I would consider. Uh, So much so that when Warholm broke the world record with 45.94, I didn't go to sleep till about three in the morning trying to process (laughs) what I just witnessed. You know, as a matter of fact, I was on the phone with Angelo. Oh, yeah. uh, and we were both like, did we just see that? You know, like, what did we just watch? Yeah, that that is, you know, still, it, it's still, I can't even process it. Yeah, 45 is wild. Um, yeah. Wild. Did, did you ever do 400 meter hurdles in your career? Yeah. Not even in like high school or college or anything? So we did 300 hurdles here in Georgia. Okay. That was our event. And I actually had the state record for about... Well, the state meet record for about 10 years, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, Angelo had the school record. You know, he and I were teammates in high school. And so it was his state meet record that I broke. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to hear about that. But he still has the school record, and that might be there for it. Well, his son, one of his twins, is running pretty close to what he ran in high school mm-hmm. and they still have another year left. So Ooh. we'll see. <laughs> Passing the torch. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then final question, let's say you're on a flight, long flight could be, you know, you're traveling to Europe for a meet. 
Um, what would be your favorite movie to watch and what would be your favorite genre of music or artist um, for you to listen to? So I'm all over the place with music. Hmm. Um, I go anywhere from hardcore hip hop to jazz to primitive blues. Mm. Primitive, um, what, what would you describe as primitive blues? John Lee Hooker, like early days, Muddy Waters, mm. that type. Got it, got it. Um, movie. Oof, that's a good one. There will be a lot. <laughs> there will be a lot of movies I would watch. And it, it, it would depend on which mood I was in. Got it, got it. Yeah, it, it would depend on the mood. Um, just off the bat, I would probably say one that I really liked was The Harder They Fall. Mm. That was a great movie. It was on Netflix and um, awesome storyline. I hope they come with a part two, but I don't know if they will. But the way they left the ending, you kind of hope there's a part two. Nice. Hey, that is, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I do sincerely appreciate you, um, you know, taking the time to be able to chat today. You dropped, you know, so many gems, so much knowledge for, you know, athletes who are competing now and going through their careers and then even athletes who have retired. Um, and I really appreciate your insight on, um, you know, kind of the state of the sport and some of the things to, you know, help promote the sport. So really great insight. So Terrence Tramiel, thank you so much. It was wonderful speaking with you today. Anderson, I enjoyed it, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. All right.